Why did a group of monks make up a fake law code in the 9th century? Find out today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, Today on the podcast, I'd like to return to the issue of medieval forgeries. In an episode that aired earlier this year, I talked about Jean Ardois, the 17th century Jesuit priest who believed that medieval monks had fabricated most of what we consider to be the corpus of ancient Roman and early Christian authors. While almost all of Aldwin's conclusions were wildly off, he wasn't entirely off his rocker, because there were precedents for this kind of thing happening, and it's one of those examples, the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals, that we'll be talking about today. Now, in order to understand this forgery and its significance, we need to do a bit of background work in two areas, the history of West Francia and the history of canon law. The world of 9th century France, or West Francia, as it should more properly be called, was incredibly tumultuous. Under the greatest of the early medieval kings, Charles the Great or Charlemagne, the kingdom of the Franks had reached its zenith. Charles was a dynamic, charismatic, and powerful leader, at least according to his biographer Einhard, and with the force of his sword and his personality, he shored up his family's position as rulers of the Franks and conquered lands to the north in the modern-day Netherlands and Belgium and to the west in modern-day Germany. But whereas Charlemagne was a great king, no one liked his son, Louis the Pious. Louis faced rebellion not only from his vassal counts and dukes, but from his own sons as well. Originally, Louis had three male heirs, Lothar, Louis, and Pepin. But then, later in life, he remarried, and his second wife, Judith, bore him a fourth son, Charles. You can tell the French aren't terribly creative with names. Originally, Louis had planned that, upon his death, the kingdom of the Franks would be divided between his three sons, and this was a long-standing Frankish custom. But with the birth of Charles, a fourth kingdom would need to be created, and it would have to be carved out of the future kingdoms of the three older brothers. Needless to say, this upset them a great deal, and to make a very long story short, Louis found himself in a civil war with his own children. At one point, they actually managed to depose their father in 833, only to have him reinstated as king the following year. But while Louis was dealing with his rebellious sons, things were afoot in the Frankish Christian church. Ever since the collapse, disillusion, again, whatever it is we're calling the end of the Roman Empire, the church, particularly the bishops of Francia, had had a fraught, sometimes cordial, sometimes antagonistic relationship with the Frankish kings and lords. By Charlemagne's time, it had become a regular practice for secular lords to have a heavy hand in their local church politics. Kings would appoint candidates to fill vacant bishoprics, and sometimes they were themselves the cause of the vacancy, as they seized or imprisoned bishops who didn't kowtow to their authority. Bishops and priests could be arrested and have their property seized. Charlemagne's own father, Charles Martel, had taken away land from the Frankish church and given it to his war band as a reward for military service. Clergy were tried before secular lords in secular courts. There was, for the church, simply too much interference by Frankish lords and Frankish kings in religious matters. What was to be done? Well, this is where we come to our second bit of background, canon law. Canon law just means the laws and rules governing the Christian church. Obviously, therefore, the most important source of canon law is the Bible, but over the previous eight centuries, a number of other texts had entered the body of works that were considered authoritative, including the writings of the church fathers like Jerome and Augustine, 
the decrees of synods and councils of the Christian Church, and letters of bishops, most notably the Bishop of Rome. The Bishopric of Rome was, in the ninth century, still developing into the institution of the papacy as we know it today, but at least in Western Europe, the papacy was held in relatively high regard, and papal letters, or decretals, carried a great deal of spiritual and legal authority and weight. Moreover, canon law, like all law, was a fluid, dynamic thing. As new situations arose, new regulations and procedures needed to be created, and so the body of works that were considered authoritative and binding was always growing. There was, however, no such thing as a complete, authoritative, universally accepted compendium of canon law. Various attempts had been made in the early Middle Ages to create such compendia, most notably by the bishops of Rome, as creating these compendia greatly added to the authority and weight of the office of the Pope. In fact, Charlemagne had requested one such collection, called the Dionysio Hadriana, from Pope Hadrian I, who had sent it with the intention of it becoming the authoritative canon law collection throughout the Frankish kingdom. Which brings us to Pseudo-Isidore. Sometime in the mid-9th century, a new canon law compendium appeared in northern France that seemed directly targeted at all of the injustices and problems that bishops and priests had been having with secular lords interfering in church matters. The author of this collection was someone named Isidore Mercator, or Isidore the Merchant, and whoever he was, Isidore seemed to have access to a large number of papal letters that didn't really exist anywhere else in any other collection. Moreover, these decretals dated mostly from the 4th century, though there were papal missives dating all the way up to the 8th century. The decretals were also bound with a canon law collection called the Hispania, which had originally been compiled in Spain after the collapse of the Roman Empire, but before the Muslim invasions of the 8th century. This collection had eventually made its way north into Frankish Gaul, where it had been heavily amended, most historians refer to it as having been corrupted, and Isidore seems to have relied heavily upon the Hispania as a way of offering supplementary commentary and justifications for the decretal letters. Finally, two other components were circulated with the decretals and the Hispania, the Benedictus Levita, a collection of Carolingian decrees relating to the Frankish church that was especially critical of the practice of core episcopates, or rural bishops who served as kinds of helpers for bishops who served in cities, and the second was a collection of Carolingian criminal procedure. Several copies of the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals contain other works in similar veins, all pertaining to issues of canon law that are sources of concern in the Decretals. So far so good, right? So what's the big deal? Well, it turns out that almost the whole thing was a forgery. There was never any person named Isidore Mercator. That name is a conflagration of two famous medieval authors, Isidore of Seville and Marius Mercator. According to our best guesses, and I will spare you the nitty-gritty linguistic and textual analysis that had to be done to arrive at this conclusion, uh, the collection seems to have been created sometime in the 830s or 840s toward the end of Louis the Pious's life, and beginning with the reign of his sons over a divided Carolingian empire. The scribes who were probably tasked with creating the pseudo-Isidore had some client who was interested in asserting episcopal authority and independence, both within the church and against the secular world. At that time, the Bishop of Rome was a fairly distant figure, with little administrative ability to interfere in the workings of the Frankish church, and so pseudo-Isidore's use of papal letters should be understood more as an appeal to a distant authority rather than a submission to that authority. 
And so, in order to create a legal precedent and basis for the claim of Episcopal autonomy and power, the authors just invented letters proving their case and set them sufficiently far into the past that the letters had the authoritative air of tradition and time. But the papal letters weren't the end of it. The rest of the texts packaged with the decretals were also at least partially fabricated. Like any good forger, the pseudo-Isidorian scribes included lots of real materials throughout the whole collection, and whoever made the forgery had access to an excellent well-stocked library of ancient and early medieval authors, which has led some historians to posit that the collection was composed in a place like Corby, which had one of the largest and best libraries in northern France. The key to the forgery, though, was the often subtle manipulation of the text, omitting words here or there, adding or subtracting something as simple as the word not in order to make their case. Both the Hispania and the Benedictus Levita were particularly subjected to this kind of treatment in order to justify the case for Episcopal autonomy made by the decretals. In these parts, a lot of real material is woven together with fake or altered material, and in order to detect the forgery, you yourself would have to have access to an unadulterated original copy of the source and be able to engage in meticulous cross-checking. It's all rather ingenious. Which brings me to my final point. What happened with the decretals? Well, they seem to have been used on a rather limited basis at the time, though at least a hundred medieval copies of the decretals survive, which is a lot for a medieval text. It wasn't really until the Gregorian reform movement of the 11th century that the pseudo-Isidorian decretals came into some minor significant use, but they themselves were eclipsed by later canon law collections. As with the donation of Constantine that I talked about in my Jean Alois episode, the ultimate downfall of the decretals was the linguistic expertise of Italian humanists and Protestant scholars in the 15th and 16th centuries, who found numerous chronological and linguistic inconsistencies in the work, particularly the use of Latin words by popes before those words had been invented. So, the story of the pseudo-Isidorian decretals is a complex one. It's a story about people searching for legal precedent when there was none, and so they set about to create that precedent. In a way, the author or authors of pseudo-Isidore had a respect for the law, and reveal a great deal about the way that people in the early Middle Ages understood authority and power. Legitimacy was, for them, the product of time, tradition, and law, and in a very roundabout way, the scribes who created this collection greatly revered those ideas, revered them so much that they felt justified in making them up. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.